Thank you so much for listening to Classical Ideas. If you'd like to support this show, you can find the link tree to all of my work in the show notes of your podcast player. Within the link tree, you can financially support the show, locate different podcast players of choice, and find social media links to help spread the work I do here on this show. Any way you can spread the word is deeply appreciated. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Think about the stories you've been told throughout your own life about your own family's history. Maybe it's filled with successes and luxuries. Maybe it's filled with painful memories. Everyone has stories that can be embraced or run from. A story that traces the long and complex history of an American family is Alex Haley's 1976 book, Roots which has sold millions and millions of copies and has become an American cultural touchstone that has been referred to by some historians and literary scholars as a, quote, black family Bible and, quote, a sacred text. A truly profound text indeed in the history of our country. My guest on this episode is Dr. Richard Newton, assistant professor of religious studies at the University of Alabama. Our topic of conversation is his new book, Identifying Roots, Alex Haley and the Anthropology of Scriptures, out now from Equinox. The book presents a cultural history of Haley's roots and asks readers to reimagine the way we tell stories and also how we define scriptures. Dr. Newton and I had several times where we had to reschedule due to the hectic nature of life, But I'm so grateful we finally were able to get together for a great conversation on identifying roots. You can find Dr. Newton's work on Twitter at SeedPods and online at SowingTheSeed.org. You can find me on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas. If you post about this episode or identifying roots on social media, please use the hashtag IDRoots to keep the conversation going. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Richard Newton on his brand new book, Identifying Roots, Alex Haley and the Anthropology of Scriptures. Dr. Richard Newton, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm so glad to have you. We have been you know, going back and forth in email for months now, I feel like, and you're finally here and I'm so delighted. It's Friday the 13th, 2020 in November. So uh, it's, it's great to spend a little bit of time with you today. Um, can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit? Sure. So I am a scholar of religion. Um, I work at the University of Alabama and uh, have been teaching here for three years. Uh, Prior to that, I was at a small liberal arts college in Pennsylvania called Elizabethtown College. Um, My training is in initially biblical studies uh, and religious studies more broadly. And I've been playing around with connections between those two and also uh, anthropology and archeology span as well. Uh, and, And through that journey, sort of been working my way through coming to understand how people make social difference, um, how they try to make difference and make a difference in the world. And it's the fine line between those two things that I've been fascinated with 
Um, and, and through that, I've been kind of chronicling my journey um, online at sowingtheseed.org, which is uh, it's basically a website where I like to have fruitful conversations in religion, culture, and teaching. Um, and so I've been doing that with conversation partners now for, I think, 10 years or so, mm. um, maybe actually more, like 13 years, which has been bonkers. Uh, but if you want to sort of see all the wild ways that this has, has gone down for me, um, you can yeah. check it out there. So. Awesome. Well, that's so cool because like, I kind of feel like that's what this project is about with me. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a, um, there's no real straight line to how we get anywhere. Right. And, uh, at some point when I decided I'm just going all in with this academic study of religion thing, um, I, I jumped on line and tried to create a space, uh, contrary to all the people who said you shouldn't do it or you can't do it or who's going to read it or who cares. Um, I decided I needed to create a space for me, um, and see what happens. And I'll be honest, I've deleted, you know, the first few years, the early years you won't find online. I've scrubbed those. And I wish I hadn't because there's probably some like really good raw, like angsty stuff that would have been great to have, you know, for prosperity, but, uh, or posterity. Um, but a lot of it's there and, um, I'm looking forward to see where it takes me as I continue this journey. Awesome. That's so cool. Richard, where did you grow up? Where in the world do you come from? So I grew up in a uh, little town called, well, not a little town. That's a lie. Uh, everyone says it's a little town. It's not. I grew up in Houston, um, but a suburb of Houston actually called Sugarland, Texas. And uh, Sugarland is a, uh, it's a suburb outside of Houston that at one point was about, you know, 30 miles from the edge. Um, and then it just grew into, you know, the, the city that it is. I don't recognize the place anymore. Um, I haven't lived there for a while. But um, I lived in Sugarland, which was really cosmopolitan. I mean, I literally have done a cul-de-sac with people from all over the world, all different faith traditions. And um, that sort of informed my, my upbringing about, like, how do I fit into this world? Um, also, especially against the sort of backdrop of a very conservative Christian um, area, region, locality. Um, and I was going to church in downtown Houston. So I would go every Sunday to downtown Houston to this like large United Methodist Church. And I was super involved in the United Methodist Church. Um, as a kid growing up, my whole family was. Uh, so I was seeing like these different worlds, especially in the late 80s, early 90s of like uh, Houston, inner city Houston or, you know, the city of Houston um, and all the plight that's going on there. But then also this very affluent suburb too. Um, and I was sort of, trying to make my way through that weird, uh, for me, what was a juxtaposition, but for others, a real disjuncture. Um, I eventually went to high school at the high school for performing and visual arts, uh, where I played violin and did orchestral music. And that place was wild uh, in that I was exposed to people who were so passionate about their arts, their craft, in ways that I couldn't even imagine. Like I wasn't great at violin, I was okay. There, I was horrible. Mm. Um, but I was watching people who were just amazing and devoted and committed. And that's sort of like what I saw as the energy I wanted to bring to whatever my craft would be, which I kind of knew would be religious studies. Uh, and so I did that and um, kind of went on from there. Awesome. Well, you know, I always love asking people to trace their academic path. So all that like up through high school history is so relevant. Um, I'm also curious about your academic stepping stones post high school, like how one door leads to another door. And then before you know it, you're an assistant professor at the University of Alabama. You know what I mean? Like, so what are some of those major turning points that got you really interested 
in combining anthropology, religion, and scriptures? Like what led you into this, uh, this, this expertise area that you currently sit within? Yeah, I, um, I guess the way that I think about it now that I'm like down memory lane and thinking about high school, like I went to these two different high schools, like one was in Sugarland and was like extremely, uh, rigorous in terms of academics and it was like just really smart people like people are doing neat things uh one person works for nasa and mission control mm. like i mean i know you know journalists and all this stuff but like i, I felt like there's a lot of pressure to just be smart and to perform really well um but when i went to the performing arts high school there was all of that except it was all about being like coming into yourself as an artist and expressing what you have to bring to the table um and then like just going all out in that pursuit. Um, not so much in terms of competition that I was certainly that, but like, how do you do what you do? And I, would, I try to take that energy into the academic study of religion. I went to TCU, Texas Christian University, mm-hmm. um, going there to study religion. Like I mm-hmm. looked up, do you have a religious studies major? I'm going to go there. Um, I you know, went on their website. They actually had a religious studies website early on. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'm stoked. This is what I'm gonna do. And I knew I was going to major in religious studies, and I knew I was going to major in a social science. I, wasn't, I tried psychology. I tried sociology. Um, neither of those were, like, a great fit. Like, their intro classes were not awesome for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned a lot through both of those. But anthropology is where I really found a place outside of religious studies that I could ask the questions I wanted to about social difference. And I got a lot of really cool, ex- like, fieldwork experience um, doing that. I worked in a Yucatec Maya a village at a field camp for cultural anthropology. Um, and I would translate uh, records of the anthropologist from Spanish to English and English to Spanish. Um, I also uh, just got to learn a lot about archaeology and a lot of different sort of social scientific analyses that I could apply to what I was doing in religious studies as well. Um, when I left college, I um, went to a seminary, a United Methodist Seminary at Southern Methodist University. Um, which was great because it gave me a space to do what I wanted to do. Um, and I kind of crafted my own program to do what I was calling biblical studies, but it was really a sort of anthropological approach to biblical studies. And I won a bunch of like little grants that allowed me to go to Israel, Palestine and work on an excavation. Uh, I went back to Mexico in this Yucatec Maya village and was looking at how, uh, agriculturalists there would interpret the Bible, especially, stories in the Bible that had to do with agriculture, Um, trying to get a sense of like, how do scriptures work like on the ground with people? Um, That it's not just that people are reading these stories, but they're writing these stories with their lives. And I was just kind of fascinated by those dynamics. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, But I tried to get a sense of how might I take that kind of idea, that sort of knowledge and use it to make sense of the world of the Bible, particularly the historical Jesus, um, and how can I teach people to engage not only the Bible, but each other as a result? And so I would go around and do these like teaching presentations where I recreated artifacts. I had like a plow, a first century plow that I'd keep in a carol at the library. The librarians thought I was bonkers. Um, but I'd have, uh, I took, um, there's a, a game called Warhammer, which is like this little miniature games that you do like sort of strategy and, and warfare. I yeah. bought a bunch of that stuff from a hobby store and recreated like, uh, the landscape of Galilee. So you can see what a farmer would, you know, the different so- sorts of soil that a farmer would plant and how that helps us understand the parable of the sower. And then I'd translate it from Greek to English. Like I was doing all sorts of weird stuff. Not sure what the end would be, but I was trying to figure out how to do me, you know? And yeah. in my PhD program, 
at Claremont Graduate University, I went specifically to study um, what was being called critical comparative scriptures, which was this idea that scriptures are not just text, but uh, orientations. And that's where I did my doctoral work and started thinking about what, I'm, what I've been calling the anthropology of scriptures, mm. um, which is the sort of studying scriptures in terms of uh, the text we read, but also those texts that seem to read us back, mm. um, that show us how to draw the lines between making difference and making a difference in the world. Who were some of your uh, graduate uh, supervisors over at Claremont? Like, who did you work with? Um, so my sort of main doctoral advisor who I studied most closely with, closely with uh, was Vincent Wimbush, who um, was a biblical scholar who was looking at um, sort of ascetic works related to Paul and other things. He did a lot of huge comparative projects around asceticism, biblical interpretation, African-American biblical um, engagement, and then sort of more con critical comparative scriptures. He'd sort of developed this program um, through an institute that he developed called the Institute for Signifying Scriptures. And so I was like a research assistant there during my doctoral work. Um, I took classes in Islam though from a scholar named Hamid Mavani, who was a ethicist. Um, Monica Coleman uh, is a process theologian at the School of Theology that was across the street at the time. And she uh, also did African-American cultural history um, and, and religious pluralism. And so I studied with her as well. Um, I was taking classes though in cultural studies and um, you know, whatever I could get to continue to keep a focus though on people, that it wasn't just gonna be text, it wasn't just gonna be theory, it was gonna be using theory to understand text to get at what people are up to. Um, and I was always trying to kind of keep those things in tension through my doctoral work while also staying in school and getting done as fast as possible because I yeah. was tired. <laughs> yeah, 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 nice. Um, um, yeah. It's so awesome that you mentioned that you got interested in archeology span for a while too and was interested in the historical Jesus. I have a friend, uh, Dr. Kerry Duncan, who was a professor at the University of Missouri and is now over in Muhlenberg. And that was a lot of the things that she talked to me a lot about uh, on this podcast actually a long time ago, like back in the beginning. That's so cool. I'm just like seeing all the threads of the way that the podcast like ties together throughout the last like three and a half years. It's just so funny. Um, okay. So Richard, we're here today to talk about a, your new book, which is very exciting. It's sitting right here on my desk. I've got it in front of me. Uh, just came out this year in 2020 and it's called Identifying Roots, Alex Haley and the Anthropology of Scriptures from Equinox in the UK. Um, Equinox is also the publisher of one of my other favorite books, Religion in Five Minutes by Russell McCutcheon, um, who is the editor, but Emily Cruz was in there. I, I think you probably know Emily, so hi I to do. Emily. Um, but you've written this tremendous cultural history of Alex Haley's world-famous 1976 book, Roots, the Saga and of an American Family. And so, you know, we haven't talked about Haley at all in the last 10 minutes or so. Um, but writing an entire book about anything is obviously insanely hard work, as anybody who has tried to do that knows. But to write a book about a person, to me, takes a tremendous commitment and a laser focus on the story of a person. And I have to assume there are listeners out there who aren't familiar with Alex Haley, considering like the generations of people who listen to this show. So before we dive into the book, I'm wondering if you can remind or inform listeners precisely who Alex Haley is and in your view, why he matters to American history. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, uh, it's helpful for me to at least remember that I didn't go into that project wanting to write about Alex Haley. Mm, okay. I went into writing a project about 
how people engage texts, like cultural texts that shape who they are and how they see the world um, and, and those dynamics. And I was trying to do that through the historical Jesus. I was trying to do that through um, sort of Christian social formation. And as I was like sort of throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks in my doctoral program, in my mm -hmm. very first seminar, I was really struggling to make sense of how that really works, um, particularly in a way where I don't just take for granted that this text or this person is important. And I felt like I was at the end of my rope, actually. It was probably about November of that <laughs> year. Uh, I know it was November that year. It was about Thanksgiving. So I was like, I'm going to, I'm not going to drop out. I don't know what to be thankful for. Like I remember, <laughs> I know I'm feeling it now. Um, but I was like, I was desperate to figure out like, how do I tie these things together? And I kept coming back to something I'd been journaling about earlier that year, which was this idea of roots. Like why do people use the word roots? so flippantly, but yet with so much significance, like mm -hmm. know your roots. You got to know where you came from to know where you're going. The root of the problem, the root of all this, the root of this you know, solution. Like we use roots so easily, but we invest so much meaning in it. And I was like, where did we learn to do that? Where did we learn to talk about square roots and radical roots and roots food and roots music and, and make that a, a discourse that matters? And I was thinking, well, I probably learned that from Alex Haley. Mm. Like I had Alex Haley's roots in my household. I didn't read it. I saw a miniseries that was based on it, but it just seemed to have this sort of self-importance, kind of like the Gideon Bible that we don't like, you know, people, I don't know how many people actually read a Gideon's Bible. You go to a hotel and you open the drawer and yeah. there's that Bible that's there and it's just sitting there. And I don't think the, the importance of it is that it's there to be read. It's that notion that, you know, there's a Bible in there mm. and there's this sort of like aura of importance present in the room in your space and there's a potential and that potential i think is what this guy named alex haley really tapped into alex haley was a mid-20th century african-american journalist or i should say black journalist who um was writing about uh notable black figures during the civil rights movement and writing about them in largely conservative outlets like reader's digest the saturday evening uh, post things like magazines like that boys life for instance mm. um, playboy magazine in fact mm -hmm. uh, and he was writing about these noteworthy black figures in the public eye to help communicate a story that black people are truly part of america that they have a place here um, from its earliest days and they're a large part of making the american dream real and in this sort of mission to communicate the story and importance of black people and to solidify their place in the nation, he, he was trying to figure out what are the terms on which black people could be read as American. And I think what he understood was to be American, you've got to have a story in which you came from somewhere that was um, not as good, that brings you to a place that is full of promise and potential. You know, people have these stories about how they got here on the Mayflower, how they got sure. to Ellis Island, the Statue of Liberty, all those things. But black people don't quite have that story per se. Mm. At least not one of volition, not one where they read, left on their own terms or came to America on their own terms. As Malcolm X, who Alex Haley interviewed and is, is known for helping pen the autobiography of Malcolm X, as told Alex Haley, Malcolm X said, you know, we didn't land on the Mayflower, or we didn't land on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock landed on us. Yeah. So how do you be black and American then if, if America is always going to be that kind of burden? 
And what Alex Haley, I think, understood from his own story was that, sure, black people didn't come to this country on their own accord, but they changed this country for the better. Their roots are in something that are beyond America. And they maintain that strength, they maintain that resolve to make America work, make America be great, mm. make America be a place worth living in and where dreams can come true. And he saw his own family as doing that. His father was a college professor, his mother was an accomplished pianist. Um, he, he was on the rise as a journalist. He was the first journalist in the Coast Guard, chief journalistic officer. Um, and he was able to do this, he said, by knowing where he came from, that knowing his family had this resolve, this strength, they had these roots. All the way back, in fact, to an African named Kunta Kinte, who, um, when he was a teenager, was captured in the Gambia by uh, enslavers, was taken to the port of Annapolis. He tried to run three times within sort of the confines of colonial America. His foot was chopped off in the last time. He got caught each time. And stuck there, sort of in, you know, colonial America, unable to mature into the, the sort of great man he was supposed to be. He determined that he would create a new world tribe to whom he could pass on his knowledge, his teachings, a sense of who he is and where he came from, on through to the generations. Um, and thus uh, make good on all that his, his people taught him. And th those messages and those ideas came through generation after generation, all the way to Alex Haley. And Alex Haley sort of tried to recount that story in historical archival terms. Uh, terms. And in so doing, wrote this huge 800-page chronicle that swept the nation and changed the way we think about family and history uh, and America um, ever since. Well, Richard, I don't say this lightly, but several times just now I got like complete like goosebumps, like shivers going like up and down my arms and like my, my head and things listening to your, your passion come through for uh, all these things that you've learned and the ways that you've processed this into this book. Uh, that was very moving and I'm, I'm a little overwhelmed at the moment. Um, how did you, so you mentioned earlier that you didn't ever read Roots growing up, but you had this like ingrained notion that it was important. It sat on this shelf and it probably like, maybe like it held like a significant place on that bookshelf where you could like see the spine of it maybe. Like, was it like that? It was, you know, honestly, it was just on a book on a shelf at one level. Mm -hmm. um, it was a book on a shelf. I mean, I remember other books that were on the shelf too. Um, one thing that was fascinating, though, about its presence was that uh, it was a first edition, so it was from 1976. Ooh, nice. And um, at the time, I mean, those were in a way a dime a dozen, but the book sold out, you know, uh, actually really quickly, I should say. It was the second uh, bestseller, best-selling book of 76, only outdone by Woodward and Bernstein's All the President's Men, for obvious reasons. And Haley's <laughs> book came out in um, the last quarter of that year. So that goes wow. to show how popular this book was. Like root, you know, lines around the, the block to get this book. Wow. And um, my dad had a copy, I guess, that he got in 76. And on the spine, he wrote Newton Family, um, which is fascinating to me. I, don't, I never got to ask him why he did that. Mm. But the book was just there. Um, I remember watching the miniseries in elementary school, which is weird because the miniseries contains 
bare-chested women in Africa. It contains a rape scene in America. It contains a lot of violence and it's a really complicated history and kind of surprising given where I grew up that they would show this. I mean, Sugarland, Texas is named Sugarland because there's a sugar factory that enslaved people worked. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a great, uh, there's a prison there where the prisoners worked in the sugar fact in the sugar fields for even while I was a kid. Um, from what I understand, I mean, like there's a lot of history there that I'm surprised they were, you know, they never talked about, but then they showed us roots. Um, and the idea that they could not talk about that history, but show us roots goes to show sort of how important and how taken for granted that's, that's whole discourse is. And um, so, yeah, I kind of knew that it was just important in some way, shape or form. And um, I began to think about this notion of scriptures as these texts that seem to be self-important that appear not to need us to read them. Mm. And I saw roots as a prime example of that and began to think, well, what if we start to think about scriptures as roots and roots as scriptures? How might that help us better understand this thing that we human beings do? When did you finally crack it open and give it a go? Uh, I started reading roots that November, um, 2009. Okay. And 800 pages. Uh, I wrote a paper in my graduate seminar on roots and uh, I was trying to make sense of what was going on in it. Um, I was also listening to uh, the roots, things fall apart, the the, the music group um, out of Philadelphia. And they have some fantastic album covers that go through black history in that Mm -hmm. album. Um, And and things fall apart is named both for, I think the, um, the sort of famous poem, but also the Chinua Achebe novel. Oh, yeah. And I was trying to wrap my mind around all of that stuff, like all of it, in a paper that was everywhere and nowhere. Um, but I remember my doctoral advisor saying, like, there's something here, keep playing with this. And I just kind of kept going with it. And, you know, I've probably read Roots a dozen times now and did all sorts of like close reading and analyses and things. And, uh, just to kind of wrap my head around what's going on in there, especially knowing that it was a book that hadn't received that kind of treatment at the time Mm. either. And so I was just sort of trying to see what was there and what I could do with it. Awesome. Well, and what's really funny about Roots is like, I actually have a connection to Roots too, because I recently purchased a child's drum set made by Ludwig Drums. That is uh, Questlove's uh, child's drum set line. So if you have any kids that play drums, Questlove makes hands down the best children's drum set that's available on the entire market for musical instruments. So wow. yeah, there's a and little, Questlove there, yeah. actually has a connection to Roots, uh, the miniseries, um, because when, I mean, Roots was remade in just a few years ago on the History Channel, no less. And um, it was a pretty big social media event, like there were Kunta Kinte hashtags, it was trending and all this. Uh, and in this modern sort of contemporary remake of Roots and the Black Lives Matter movement, Questlove was the um, sort of musical producer for the miniseries. And the original is Quincy Jones. Uh, and then the new version, it was Questlove, which is um, a pretty interesting connection, right? Of, of, yeah, yeah. Um, a legacy, right? Like there's a story about legacy that leads to creating legacy. I love it. I love it. Okay. So um, I want to get a little bit of vocab down here really quick because, you know, I'm thinking about the, these key words that you have, um, you know, on the front cover of your book and that you've mentioned several times now. So you have the words scriptures and roots in the title of the book, which refers not only to Haley's book, but to pasts and histories of every person. So mm-hmm. I see like you 
identifying roots in like multiple different ways, yeah. right? And I want to go through the, the usage of the term scripture in relation to roots as well. And you've kind of alluded to this, but I want to go a little deeper. Um, I want to talk about the multi-pronged meaning of roots that comes through in your work. And so I want to start with the term roots. Like, how do you understand the importance of the term roots in relation to this book with the multiple different connotations? Yeah, so, so I think there are uh, two main threads that inform my understanding of roots analytically, but also I think shape our understanding of roots historically in modernity. And one is this idea of roots as the irreducible radical notion, right? When we talk about a square root, we're mm -hmm. talking about a sort of mathematical description of a number that cannot be reduced any further mm. um, in relationship to itself, right? We talk about like ra radical numbers in the, the same way. Um, in fact, the sort of Latin radix is the word for root. Um, so there's, and in fact, uh, in other languages, roots has been translated into 20 odd languages or so. Oftentimes it's translated, at least in the sort of Latinate world, as something like radix or raices or something along those lines. So that tension of the kind of radical notion of roots uh, is something that's lost in English sometimes because of how, how we've conflated those two sort of ideas, but um, it's, it's more prominent in other languages. Um, we can return to that sort of uh, power though um, and irreducibility when we think about roots in terms of uh, African-American intellectual history. In African-American intellectual and cultural history, roots relates to not only conjure and the sort of naturalistic vehicles by which um, many African people have drawn powers of healing, powers of defense, powers of strength, uh, but also um, a sense of self and identity and community. So I think here in particular, um, there's a, a, a famous example in the work of Frederick Douglass, where Frederick Douglass, um, famous uh, black orator and abolitionist in the 19th century, um, he, he's recounting his own life and he's, he's uh, in slavery with a slave breaker, someone whose job it is to um, make black people know who, to whom they belong. And uh, Frederick Douglass goes to this sort of uh, medicine person to get a root, a conjure person, to get a root that if he holds a root, he can't be broken, he can't be taken. And so he takes this and then um, Douglass basically wrestles and battles with this uh, slave breaker and they like battle all night. It's very much like a Jacob story, like yeah. from the Hebrew Bible, right? Um, like Israel and the struggle. Yeah. Douglas holds on to this root, you know, with this root on my person, um, you know, he can't be tamed. He can't be taken. Well, that's what roots is all about. What these stories are about, what that sort of sense of knowing where you come from is all about. If you know that no one, no place, nowhere, no how can take anything from you. Um, and I think Alex Haley is tying all of those things together in his story and in his person and giving it to um, all who would read it and take it. In fact, written in 1976, the Bicentennial of America, he, he prefaces his book as saying, this is a gift. This is a birthday gift to my country. Mm. Oh man, I love it. Okay, so I want to tie in scriptures here too, because when we think about scriptures, right, we think about, you know, the, the Torah, or we think about the New Testament, or we think about, you know, things that are commonly associated and worldwide accepted as being scriptures of certain religions. But here you have this, this book that came out 
you know, in the seventies and you have it tied in with the notion of scriptures in general, which is super fascinating to me because it talks about the flexibility of the term scripture to me, right? It asked me to reconsider my own definition for what scriptures are and can be. How do you understand the term scripture in relation to uh, roots in, in the ways that you talk about it in your book? Yeah, and I, and I think it's important too to, to question, like, why are any of the texts that you named somehow important than any other text that you didn't name. I agree. Right? Like all the other books that were on my shelf. Yeah. Like why did I write on those? What was it about roots that glowed differently, you know? Yeah. Um, or the Bible that glows differently when the Gideons place it in that nightstand at the Marriott. Like, mm-hmm. like why does this, how does that happen? And it's not because there's something in the book that makes it special. It's about how people relate with the text to see it as, something special and that it helps them see what is special in themselves and in others and what's perhaps not special in themselves and others. And it's that relationship, that anthropology, um, as Wilfred Cantwell Smith, famous comparativist, put it, that helps us reconsider the whole phenomena. And um, it's, it's important to recognize too that in using the term scriptures as somehow a, built, a way to classify certain special cultural text. There's a history there that helps us see them as special. And it's not that people think they're great literature necessarily. It's not just that um, their lives were changed because of it. They seem to be situated in histories and stories around captivating and compelling and um, challenging people in the status quo. Uh, in a way that redefines the very terms by which they understand each other. And this gets to the, per- the key word in my title or the first word in my title, identifying. Mm. It becomes this sort of vector or space through which we identify ourselves and others. Where we see cultural texts do that work for people. That's where I think we can learn a lot by perhaps making comparisons to those scriptures that come so readily to us. Mm. That's so what interesting. are those cultural texts that we can use to identify ourselves and others. Oh, I love it. I love how every single word in your title is not wasted. It's a long title of the book with the title and then the subtitle, but every single word serves a purpose within the context of this book, um, which I really appreciate. I just wanted to say that. Um, Something that really stands out to me as well, and this ties into the notion of scriptures, is that, you know, some liter- you mentioned in the book that a literary scholar like Helen Taylor and the historian David Keone refer to Roots as a, quote, Black family Bible and a, quote, a sacred text. That really captivated me because it put into perspective how this text is almost stratospheric in its importance in a way that I, like a white suburban kid from the outskirts of St. Louis, was never really exposed to. And, you know, you're coming at this from a religious studies training angle and I'm curious if you could tell me about the next level importance of this text and how you feel about those descriptors of being almost biblical or sacred, while also tying in your new uh, you know, perspective as a religious studies scholar and how you feel like you may have like slid into like an unexplored uh, gap in the literature per se. I think that uh, one way at coming to understand a sort of anthropology of scriptures is to try to chart the drama um, 
by which a text becomes important. And if you think about 1976, mid-20th century, the Bible in a lot of ways isn't that important. I mean, scholars of religion, like Peter Berger, famous sociologist, thought religion was going to go away mm-hmm. in America. His famous book, The Sacred Canopy, um, ends with this notion that you know, we're moving into becoming a secular nation. Now, he, of course, recants that very idea in later editions because of the rise of what he sees as fundamentalism and, and the like, and that cultural texts become all sorts of important again. But to have the scriptures like a black family Bible or a sacred text be used to um, describe a clearly non-religious religious text uh, says something about the orientation that perhaps Berger was trying to wrestle with, that um, people don't seem to buy into the power of any monolithic great book, uh, classical idea, you know, packaged yeah. so conveniently. You know, this is a, a time when people are like mixing and matching and, and, and doing all that work, right? Uh, like you think about the hippies and, and uh, New Age and, and all of that. It's, it's just all a mashup. You, you know, even these scholars, a lot of scholars were saying, you know, well, it's not about roots. It's about routes. It's about multiplicity and hybridity. Sure, life is messy. But for whatever reason, people like the convenience and the coherence and cogency of a single monolithic canon. And Roots reminded people of that. When you have people wrapping around bookstores to grab a book, many of whom are not black, you're on to something. When, you're, when you have a multimedia phenomena that gathers together not only black people, but white people and people all over the world to watch a story told, a story that should be familiar, right? The American story, mm-hmm. but told with a cast that has for ages not been a part of that story or mm-hmm. been literally a black mark in it. Like you're on to something. And what we see in, in that mid 20th century and with the sort of roots phenomena, um, what Time Magazine dubbed as Haley's Comet, we actually see um, scholars of religion reminded about the power of text, religious communities reminded about the power of their texts. Um, black liberation theology, which is on the rise, starts to engage Alex Haley's roots as very formative for what liberation theology could be. Um, Elizabeth Schusler Free Arenza, biblical scholar, um, feminist critic, in her famous book, uh, In Memory of Her, which redescribes Christian origins in terms of feminism, in the preface, she puts Alex Haley right next to Gustavo Gutierrez, liber- famous liberation theology, theologian out of Latin America. Um, we're seeing uh, Jewish people talking about their roots. We're seeing Latter-day Saints talking about their roots. We're seeing Protestants even coming up with roots curriculum. And so the idea that something that's not the Bible, something that's not the Torah, something that's not these texts, reminds the people most invested in those texts about their potential importance, shows me that scriptures is not about the text and the writing. It's about what people do to move other people, to compel and captivate and orient. So interesting. So you mentioned the unity that Roots inspired among people across demographics in this country in the mid-70s. Would you see like a similar cultural phenomenon being like uh, the release of the Hamilton musical a couple of years back? I think so. I mean, I, I often talk about Roots as a sort of social media 
phenomena before social media. Gotcha. And in a way, yeah, I think Hamilton's a good example. Uh, Black Panther, I think, is a really good example. Oh, okay. Um, I also think the 1619 Project is a really good example. Nice. And I would say probably p- perhaps bringing all three together helps you sort of see what Roots was working with. Multimedia, taking a discourse that's clearly important, music, well, not music in the case of Roots, but um, history and writing, right, which seemed to be super important to Alex Haley, and using those to kind of recast how we see the world in the United States, um, and, and the United States, I should say, uh, seems to be the kind of through, uh, the through line through all of those. Um, I will say, though, that just like all three examples, um, they're not always unifying, and Roots was very divisive at the time, too. I mean, especially when was, it was watched um, on the screen, on the television screen, this sort of eight-part miniseries, sometimes the scenes were so violent and so contentious that arguments would break out at work. My dad um, told me a story about how after one of the episodes, like, he would see, like, black people and white people get in arguments around the water cooler mm. um, in his office and stuff, you know, about... Uh, Black people being like, you know, your people did this to my people back in the, you know, like, I mean, in white people apologizing and like people didn't know what to do. There was a famous moment on um, one of the daily talk, daytime talk shows um, where the cast of Roots actually went on after an episode to kind of talk about how like, you know, we're all good. This sort of do almost do damage control because it was so raw and so real. Um, And Michael Eric Dyson, the famous sociologist said that, um, if the civil rights movement changed our laws when it comes to racial difference, Roots works to try to change our hearts. But changing hearts, pulling those heartstrings is a form of violence. It's changing the status quo. And so as much as it was bringing people together, that change ain't easy. Um, and the stakes were really high. And so the way that we see arguments about um, does the 1619 Project really tell the story of American history? Is it fair to say that America's story starts in 1619 and not 1776 or even further prior than 1619? Um, is Black Panther just uh, Marvel falling into traps of diversity and equity, you know, or, or whatever? Is Hamilton whitewashing history? All those kinds of tensions happened with Roots, too. Um, perhaps no stronger than in the Academy, in fact. But people take it, and it's, it's, it's too late. You can't, you, you can't wipe it away. It's too much a part of the culture and too ingrained in how we see the world and do what we do. Amazing. Well, and you mentioned like the division and the tensions. And speaking of that, I mean, tensions were a week past the 2020 election in the United States here. And you start the book with somebody who is very prominent in this country, uh, Barack Obama, and the second inauguration of his in 2013. And you start with Obama's inauguration, but also with Lamar Alexander, the retiring senator from Tennessee, who quoted Alex Haley at the inauguration and said, find the good and praise it. Why did you start the book with Obama and Alexander in relation to Haley and roots and scriptures? So I'm in graduate school and working on, I can't remember if I was in the exam phase at that point or what I was doing, but I was, I was, I was working, right? Because that's all you do in graduate yeah. school. And <laughs> yes. I'm, I have the TV on, I'm watching this historic event and writing. And this is the very beginning of the this inauguration when um, as tradition, we'll see what happens this year, um, <sighs> but the tradition is that the joint 
Congressional Committee on Inaugurational Ceremonies is a bipartisan commission. And there's supposed to be a sort of like ceremonial bipartisan moment where in that case, the Republican uh, Lamar Alexander kind of introduces, opens up the ceremony. And in that scene, he kind of saves face to the fact that, you know, his party lost and is like, you know, the late Alex Haley, my friend, and they were friends, they're both from Tennessee. Um, you know, late Alex Haley said, find the good and praise it. And Lamar Alexander says, you know, this phrase is a good opportunity, a good reminder for us to think about the peaceful transition of power and the larger sort of American story of which we are all a part. And I'm watching this happen and writing about roots, like all of this in real time. And this is still also the, not the early days of the internet, but the early days of like internet research and sort of humanities work. So there's not even a lot online about roots. Right. And social media is pretty, you know, like new in this era too. And I'm like Googling real-time posts, like real-time blogs. And these journalists are like, why did Lamar Alexander cite Alex Haley? And they're like doing their commentary. And it's, it's because he's a friend. It's because of this. And I'm like, it's so much more than that. Mm. Like you got to think about all the political points that he's gaining by appealing to this black person as he tries to lend a hand across the aisle and save face. And I was like, this is a great little sort of micro moment to think about the kind of tensions of unity and disjunction that is part of the American experiment um, and the work that scriptures do or that people use to do to others and to themselves. Um, and so I ended up actually using that as a sort of way to start the book. And um, I think it's, uh, you know, people say, well, how would you end the book? And I don't have a good great sort of roots reference to end the book with in the transition from Obama to, to Trump. But there is a similar appeal to like, who are we going to be? How are we going to look back to the past? And the sort of, there's a subtext yeah. that the future of America lies in getting back to our roots. Oh boy. Held by the founding fathers, held by, you know, what made us great in the first place. And so the idea that you don't even have to talk about roots, but that we're going to talk about America on the terms of roots. Which you almost can't think of without talking about Alex Haley. Sort of speaks to the larger point. It's not about reading the book that's at your nightstand. It's the fact that you think there's something special about having the book at your nightstand. You know, and I'm kind of I'm I'm thinking in real time here about how possibly Roots was a way that forced a lot of people who were comfortably running from a lot of history, a lot of painful history in this country, avoiding it, where all of a sudden it was on their screen and it was unavoidable. And they were actually having to being forced into having these conversations and think about complicit uh, actions and in personal histories and family histories, maybe for the first time, um, you know, 110 years after the Civil War. So like you're mentioning this disjunction, and I'm picturing some people that are being like ignoring their old history or running from it like Haley's mom who says I'm moving away from all that old stuff and I'm moving forward where then you have Haley being like no 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 I want to look at it so I'm I'm seeing a lot of stuff I'm seeing uh, across demographics, not just Haley's family, but every family in the country and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about you know, leaning into roots, running from roots, and what you learned during this uh, about what stands out to you during your research? I think one way to answer that question is to think about the parallels between our present moment and sort of where I kind of ended the book. 
I end the book actually talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. And there are various ways where you can see Root's rhetoric used in the Black Lives Matter movement. I don't, the book, I finished the book, uh, I think, prior to like Colin Kaepernick wearing a Kunta Kinte shirt as he's protesting, um, you know, uh, police brutality against black people in this country. Um, I finished the book before the governor of Virginia um, is, is shown to be wearing blackface uh, when he was younger and his handlers say, well, he's going to read ta Coates Between the World and Me, The Case for Reparations, and Alex Haley's Roots, and still gets reelected. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, uh, there are these ways in which Roots uh, becomes a great resource to work one's way out through racial strife and realities in this country. Um, and I think something you said about <clears throat> people having to face these stories, whether it's something to run from or something to lean into, um, with, uh, with roots is really important um, because on the screen this happened because there was a, like basically a blizzard in this country that it was a really harsh winter in January of 77. So people couldn't go anywhere. They were stuck at home watching TV. And when something was really good on this must see TV show, they were all into it. I mean, Vegas casinos were even empty. Sports bars were empty or were watching roots. Fast forward to this year. We're in a pandemic where people are forced to look at their phones and their television screens, see literal lynchings happening in this country. And what are people going to do except reckon with that history, running from it or running to say something about it and into the strife? And what I see going on there is one, a notion that history matters. Two, that we all have a part to write and author the story of the world we live in, this nation, if you will. And that there's, you know, we can use roots as a vocabulary to talk about this, but we can also start to parse why people do what they do. And it seems to be that we see around these like tensions of difference. People use these stories to uproot others. They use it to sort of route through the world and make a sense of what's going on and and deal with, the sort of struggle and pain of not knowing who one is and where one comes from and what one's going to be. Um, And lastly, they use it to take place in the world, to take root, to be at home, to find a place where they belong. And what I hope my book does is challenge people to see the terms on which they feel like they belong and the terms on which they make sure other people don't belong. Mm. Um, And when we start to do that, We learned that uh, this thing that we're building, call it America, call it the world, call it a future, it is tough. Yeah, man. Very well said. Uh, You've got me thinking about all those things right now. And like I said earlier, I got some some goosebumps going on where I'm I'm, I'm reckoning with the heaviness of all of this, but embracing it, welcoming it. Like it it feels good, you know? Um, So I want to talk a little bit about you know, your process of getting into the information of the book. I want to know, so I, when I talk to historians and scholars, I always love asking like a fun question of like, what archives did you dig in? How did you explore? Where did you go? What memories stand out from you? What are some heavy moments that linger with you as uh, from your research process of getting this book and manuscript all in working order? Um, I went to, it's funny when you hearing, 
I, I appreciate the question because <laughs> um, I did go do like archival work, which I hadn't done before. Uh-huh. Um, I went to uh, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, which has uh, some of Alex Haley's papers and collections um, in various sort of uh, special collections. I was able to view some of those. Um, I went to Hamilton College where Alex Haley actually worked for a while um, as sort of a writer in residence. And I got to look at some of his papers there. Wait, in New um, York? In New York, yeah. Where, where New York. Brent, Brent Plate? Yeah. In fact, he invited me out there knowing my project. And uh, so I gave a talk out there and um, also got to look at the special collections. Um, he, he, I remember he, he coined the term, I may have used it in the book, Haleyalia, and, um, and made sure I was able to get access there. Um, and it's interesting, you know, thinking about archives and sources and stuff. Um, Brent Plate was one of my undergraduate professors mm. uh, at TCU. He was at TCU when I was an undergrad, and I took like three classes from him. I used to joke I had a minor in Plate. Um, I remember when he, he launched Material Religion, the journal that he's sort of helped start. Um, I remember when he was in the planning phases, and I got a first issue, which was really cool. I don't have it anymore, but I remember thinking that was really awesome. But uh, yeah, he's very much a big part of my own intellectual history and formation. Um, and, and actually, uh, it was in his class that I sort of learned to try to find my voice and use what I have. Because I think the thing that stands out to me about my research process were all the gaps. Mm. I had um, moments where, you know, there wasn't a lot of online work. I mean, it was still the early ages of like cataloging and things. Sure. And I couldn't find things that were written on roots. Um, Funny enough, as I was like finishing the dissertation and things and, and databases got more uh, sort of resourced, I was able to find more articles that had been written in the 70s and 80s and 90s and things, but they just simply weren't there accessible to me, you know, in the early days of my work. There were no real books, scholarly books written on roots. And then all of a sudden, a ton of books came out as I was finishing my, the first draft of mine. And I was like, oh man, and they were really good and they do all such a great work. And so I kind of leaned heavily on those because there was all this new great analysis but then I had to figure out for myself what can I do what can I bring to this conversation that they haven't and also in light of what they've done yeah and it probably goes back to lessons I learned in in Grant Plate's class it goes back to lessons I learned in high school that you don't always have the best tools you're not always the most talented you don't always have whatever you think you need to get a job done but what makes arts, what makes music, what makes scholarship is that we marshal the resources we have to approach questions and possibilities and opportunities to consider themes and ideas and details and nuance and subtlety again and again and again. Mm. And if I could commit myself to that kind of discipline and exploration, maybe I would come up with something that would be interesting to at least one other person. <laughs> yeah, and I actually got to talk to Dr. Plate about all this work. Um, and I'd imagine that his work within film and art may have, you know, had a lot of influence on the way that you were incorporating discussing the miniseries into your book. You know what I mean? Like, because it's that visual that he writes about that I see coming through in your work as well as a reader. Yeah, I mean, I, the first class I took with him was called Religion, Art, and Visual Culture. And, um, I actually encountered in that class a lot of really interesting um, sort of myths, you know, that uh, 
seem to be spaces of just this massive social formation where the anthropology to me was really quite compelling. I wrote a paper on um, uh, M. Night Shyamalan's uh, Unbreakable, oh, wow. you know, the comic book movie, like yeah. one of the early comic book movies and looking at the way that comic books function to tell narratives and how we might connect those narratives across time. I wrote a paper on that. I wrote a paper on a film called Soy Cuba which is a film that came from Cuba. It was about, actually it came from, I think, uh, Russia and was about Cuba during the sort of mid 20th century. Um, I remember watching, you know, all these sort of art house films that got me thinking differently. And I think that really helped to shape my approach about interpretation and the possibilities therein. That is so cool. Um, I noticed another familiar name in your acknowledgement section. That's Dr. Kelly Baker. How did uh, Dr. Baker uh, assist you in the, uh, in the writing process? Um, Kelly Baker helped me to own the idea that I could be a writer. Mm. Um, she really helped me take what I was doing at so- on Sowing the Seed and begin to think about it as a um, thing that other people could read and that maybe I could do something with my words um, in sort of a public facing and larger audiences more than I had been imagining in part because she was reading my stuff and, um, and I was reading her stuff and I think she was figuring out what it meant for her to be a writer um, at a time when I was also trying to do the same and she sort of had she'd finished her doc uh, her doctorate a few years ahead of me, but was also doing work that was trying to reconsider familiar histories in ways that people weren't um, doing. Like she wrote the gospel according to the Klan um, that a lot of people told her well, that you can't do that and this <laughs> discipline with this, this. And, you know, my, my family motto, my dad said is, you know, we go where we want to go. And so I saw her going where she wants to go. And I was like, oh, okay, we, we, we have, we're going to be fast friends. Yeah. Um, she also has kids about the same age as my kids, a little bit older. And so we sort of, um, the first word that came to mind is commiserate, but that's so wrong. Um, we, we, uh, she encouraged me a lot uh, through trying to figure out how to be a scholar and an academic and a writer and also a parent. Um, and so just learning about how to live life and how to be observant and dealing with these tricky, tough and heavy histories, but also trying to do something with it that, you know, might make the world a little bit better for that generation awesome. <laughs> by coming to understand the generations out of which we come, right? What do we do with these roots? Uh, there, there was, I wasn't let off the hook and I was glad to be on it with such a, uh, a great thinker and writer. What are you, uh, what are you working on next? What do you got coming down the pipeline? Uh, I am currently developing a collection of essays that I've written. Um, some I've written, some I haven't written on thinking about the, uh, notion of religion and categories we associate with religion, but starting with the perspective of African-Americans and their history. Um, what happens if we talk about, theorize about religion, starting with people who um, had to learn what religion was on penalty of death? Mm. Um, what does it mean to talk about sacred texts and sacred space and or myths and truth claims and ethics and violence? Um, and so I think that book is gonna be called Signifying Religion in African-American Worldview. Um, and it's based yeah. upon a class, my, actually a class that uh, I've taught and continue to teach. Um, and one of my favorite classes to, to teach. Do you have a timeline for that book project? Um, hopefully soon. Sweet. Um, because it is a collection it's going, it's that going I'm also good. reworking things. It's going yeah. good? It's going well. It's going really well. There are some new pieces that I'm, I'm working on and adding. 
um, to the collection, but I'm hoping, you know, I, I don't want to put a timeline on it because I've lived through most of 2020 yeah. and <laughs> know the futility in that. But um, this oh, is a God. book that's not going to take me nearly as long as it took me to write this Roots one. Um, and, and I'm excited about it because it's, um, it very much represents my journey uh, as a thinker, much in the same way as my website does, you know, as I spoke about at the beginning, that it's, um, they're essays that have, were born out of the classroom, um, many of them, and born out of various stages of my career. And some people have read them and some people haven't, and they're old ideas and new ideas. And I'm hoping that um, it will become a venue for me to, to tap into the same excitement that I get when I'm teaching and learning with my students. Where can people find you if they want to know more about your work? Sure. So um, Sowing the Seed, Fruitful Conversation, Religion, Culture, and Teaching uh, is kind of the main hub to find me. And so that's sowingtheseed.org. Um, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SeedPods. I'm on YouTube at Sowing the Seed. Awesome. I'm in all those spaces. Well, I'm loving the book, Identifying Roots, Alex Haley and Anthropology of Scriptures, which is out now, and everybody can find that. Um, Dr. Richard Newton, I am just so grateful to you for spending an hour with me on this Friday and uh, kind of making my day. This was just such a wonderful time to spend with you today. I had a blast. Thanks for having me. 